Known affectionately as Frosty the Showman, impresario John Frost has been at the pinnacle of musical theatre in Australia for several decades. The Gordon Frost organisation contributes much of the commercial product that traverses stages around the country. His productions have garnered a swag of local awards as well as two Tony Awards on the Broadway stage. Frost grew up in Adelaide and harboured dreams of a showbiz life. He'd staged backyard entertainments with doting Aunt Mary playing Eliza to the stage-struck Frost's Henry Higgins. It was a childhood influenced by a regular diet of television and Hollywood movies. A dalliance with amateur theatre in his teens provided him with the realisation that he was suited more to backstage. He left school at 15 and began his career as a dresser on the J.C. Williamson's production of Mame. Frost had found what he wanted to do, and the young apprentice garnered enormous knowledge working his way through a succession of roles. Wardrobe master, office assistant to Ken Brodziak, stage manager, company manager and agent. Each experience informing his prized accomplishment as producer. In 1983, John Frost co-founded the Gordon Frost Organisation with Ashley Gordon. They took a lease on the University of Sydney's Footbridge Theatre and presented a succession of shows that would demonstrate to the pair the precarious nature of the business. Shows emanating from the Footbridge included Women Behind Bars, Night Mother, Agnes of God and a just sensational production of Jerry's Girls. It's a riveting story and John speaks frankly and with great wit about his journey and what is involved in being Frosty the Showman, producing commercial product, increasing the profile of musical theatre and delivering a magical experience to audiences. Where do these come from? They are, I got them at an auction. Because I've I, seen them before. Yeah, yeah. I've never had them and I bought them at an auction recently. And I was going to, because I've got a farm now, I'm going to build this big pavilion at the farm where people like Geraldine Turner can go and sing a few old songs now and then up in the uh, southern highlands and they'll be the entrance to the door because people, a lot of people will find them offensive and that's really why I wanted them. So that they would be at the beginning as you walk into this big pavilion. So they light up. Too. So I've seen them somewhere before. Was it at Widget Hotel I, Foyer or no, no, no? The they were, they were on the set of Phantom of the Opera. No, they were. They're not props. They're real. They were. I bought them from this deceased estate right. in Chatswood. I think it was. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Only about three hundred dollars each. That pavilion's a great idea. I guess mm. it's a bit like that. Um, uh, was it Diane Salento who built a, a yeah, theatre yeah, in yeah. the rainforest? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's sort of fantasy. And then I can put all my theatre things up there. All my posters, all my uh, set models, all my, you know, ball gowns from My Fair Lady and stuff, and King and I. Because you're in the Southern Highlands, people mm. could do the Don Bradman Museum. That's right, yeah. It'll and be, then the John Frost it'll Museum. It'll be the Frosty Pavilion, yeah. <laughs> mm. when, when did you first lay eyes on a producer? I, I can't really remember. I think it, look, I think it might have been during... Uh, Canterbury Tales, which was the late 60s, and they wore grey suits. Were you working on the production? Yeah, I was working on the production. I was a dresser, and I dressed Johnny Lockwood, the leading man, in Canterbury Tales at the old, old Theatre Royal that's no longer there. Not the one that's there, but it's closed up. But And these two men came backstage, and they were in grey suits, and one was a man called Paul Rianfaldi, and the other one was called Eric Duckworth, who was also, yes, he was a producer. 
and they were the co-producers of Canterbury Tales along with, uh, I think, Ken Brodziak of Aztec Services and JC Williamson's. And I remember seeing them go into the Star's dressing room, Johnny Lockwood's dressing room, and I often wondered what they were. But I remember sort of further back when I worked, when I was like 15 or 16, when I worked for JC Williamson's, when they came backstage, I don't know who they were, uh, to see Gailey Byrne, who was the star of the J.C. Williamson production of May. And I often wondered what they sort of look like insurance brokers now, if I think about it. And then I just dismissed it. And then, you know, yeah, that's probably when the first time I saw it. Was there, was there any um, attraction of thinking that that's my... No, I think I, 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 think I then, it, then evolved over a period of time that, oh, that's what they do. They're, they're the bosses. Because my boss in those days particularly on Maine, was people like Sue Natras, who was the stage company company manager, stage manager, uh, a man called Frank Howes, and a lady called Pauline Smithson, who was the ASM, I think, on that show. So, you know, I was I was a dresser on Maine. This is in 68, I think. I think it was 68, in Adelaide. And so that, 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 I, they were the people that sort of, scared me they were the my direct bosses i suppose and then eventually i saw these people in gray suits thinking well who are they then if these are my bosses well they were the producers they were the you know the head honchos and then as it as my career went on in those early early days i decided this is what i want to do i want to be in the theater but i knew i wasn't a performer and i knew i couldn't pull a rope all my life and i knew i couldn't do a quick change all my life so what do you do and being ambitious and I thought, I want to be one of those people in the grey suit. And then as you get smarter and wiser, you go through life and you go, I can do it better than them. Like, why would they want to do that show? They should be doing that show. But that's naive. That's me being a very young, naive person in the business, wanting, thinking I could do better. Of course I couldn't have done better in those days because I didn't have the experience behind me or the, the knowledge. knowledge the resources mm, exactly yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. but that was I put that down to driven ambition you know sort of I could do that we'll talk about your the pathway of your career uh, shortly mm. let's rewind now back to you're born in Adelaide born in Adelaide 1952 right. that makes me very old wise man of the theatre wise man of the theatre mm. yeah. veteran as they say um, and um, did you have a, a favourite composer or composing team growing up? No, I think, look, the, the last... The, I think <clears throat> if we're getting to, you know, what made you do it, what made you jump into the business, I think I was influenced strongly by, certainly by the glorious black and white television in the 60s, um, by shows like In Melbourne Tonight with Graham Kennedy, um, Shows like the Mavis Bramston show, I think. Uh, so this so is all, variety sort of. It's live. all that variety thing, yep. yeah. And if you look at an old movie called The Jolson Story yep. about Al Jolson with uh, Mr. Parks, Larry Parks, yep. um, you you can um, that that was like my favorite favorite ever film. And then I I discovered, um, you know, the pictures, the Adelaide pictures. So you you know I got a job as a lolly boy, a tray boy, on a little movie called The Sound of Music 
in 70 millimeter at the Regent Theatre or the Paris Theatre in Adelaide, I can't remember. And I was a lolly boy there for that. And so I'd see Julie Andrews run up that mountain four times a day or, you know. Because you're in the auditorium actually. I was in the auditorium waiting, yeah, holding, you know, the house lights would go down. So just before I'd leave, I'd see her run up that hill. Were you able to stay for the film or you had to go out? Oh, no, I'd make sure. I, no, I had to go down and drop it there, but I saw lots of, lot in and out of the film all the time. Hmm. And, of course, Mary Poppins at the same time. I didn't work on Mary Poppins, but I wagged school several times to go to the Metro Theatre in Adelaide to see Julie Andrews do Mary Poppins. So you grew up in a, a rough-and-ready housing estate, yep. Ferriden Park. Ferriden Park, yeah. That's, that's north yep. of Adelaide. Yes. Was that a sort of pretty... Rough, tough existence no, as a child? It, no, it wasn't because though I had great parents and I had great brothers and sisters and it was... My dad was a, a warfare, a waterside worker and mum cleaned offices. So we didn't have a lot, but what we had was, I think, a loving family and I think a pretty balanced upbringing. You know, there was never any really you know, massive arguments. Tell me about your Aunt Mary. And my Aunt Mary, who had a, a, a major stutter. <laughs> and uh, I, as a young, I must have been like nine, I think. And I had my mother, I'm jutting all over the place, but it'll get to somebody. My mother and my brother's fiance, Margaret, decided to go to Melbourne to see My Fair Lady. And that was the big thing in Adelaide is, you know, we're getting the Pioneer bus to Melbourne and we've got tickets to see My Fair Lady. And they went and saw Bunty Turner and Robin Bailey. And they came back and they bought a program back, a silver program, which was the souvenir program. And I looked at it and looked at it and I was transfixed about it. And all I could remember is Margaret and my mother talking about how beautiful it was and how glamorous it was and that how lucky they were. And I thought, oh my God, I wish I was... I would. And I didn't have any concept then of a, a show on the stage anyway, because I'd never been to the live theatre. And I just thought there was something about it that was really exciting. And I opened this program and saw the Ascot scene. And, and I remember watching television one night and there was a, a TV program called Review 61 or 62, compared by Digby Wolf. And I remember vividly the company doing with Robin Bailey, Bunty Turner and Kenneth Laird doing, um, I could have, not I could have danced all night, sounds like Rain in Spain in black and white, glorious black and white. And I've been trawling wherever I can to try and find that clip, but it doesn't seem to exist. It must have been wiped. But it was all a part of, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding I'm going in circles, but, but it, it was all a part of the glamour that was luring me to be a part of it. Now, I didn't know how to be a part of it or what part of it meant anyway. So it wasn't really until I fell in love with doing, you know, working in the cinemas, then doing my own backyard shows, and we'd, we'd do scenes from My Fair Lady. So it was all that Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland stuff? Totally, and my auntie played Eliza Doolittle, and I played Henry Higgins, and we'd mime or sing along with the, with the Julie Andrews album because the movie wasn't out in those days. That was a prized possession, wasn't it? Every, well, that's right, Every yeah. household wanted every, a copy of the wanted LP. that, yeah. Mm. You usually had that South Pacific, the movie with Mitzi Gaynor, and maybe Oklahoma. Um, but I had that and Mary Poppins, 
because I discovered Julie Andrews, you see, and then eventually Sound of Music. But, but um, so we do these backyard shows and I'd sell tickets, you know, for, I don't know, five, five sixpence to come and see me do an Al Jolson imitation with um, shoe polish on my face, doing blackface. Um, when it was, how easily did that come off? It didn't. It burnt your skin, took right. layers of skin off. Right. So it was like a dermablast. It was hideous. <laughs> and it wouldn't come off. It was just like... You know, that's why your skin is so beautiful. That's right. That, exactly. Today. just took layers <laughs> off. Anyway, so... so and they, those were the days when no one ever thought about it. You could never do it now. God, you wouldn't. But, but um, yeah, so I'd do, you know, I'd sing Mammy and Swanee to Larry Parks's Al Jolson imitation. So, you know, I'd do all that. But Were you able to get to live performance much? You talk about cinema. No, I hadn't been to. I hadn't seen any live Because show. it's a glorious uh, yeah. Her Majesty's Theatre. Yeah, well, I didn't even yeah. know Her Majesty's Theatre existed. When did you discover that? I only discovered it because every Saturday afternoon I'd go to the sort of the local cinema and it was a cinema in Adelaide called the Piccadilly Theatre in North Adelaide and I'd go there and I remember my mum giving me I think we had 20 cents so you'd have five cents for the bus you'd have 10 cents for um ice cream get in to buy the ticket maybe she gave me more maybe it was 50 cents or 40 cents and then you'd buy a choo-choo bar as your lolly licorice licorice thing Mm -hmm. yeah tough black choo-choo bar and that was your lolly and you'd go and see the double feature which would be a Tarzan movie or it'd be some beach blanket bingo or something I don't know I can't remember vividly but but so you'd see two movies for like 15 cents and then they'd have competitions up there where I'd go in for the competitions if you knew the answers and you'd win a free ticket for next week or something like that they'd do that before the show started on the stage so did that and then, you know, I'd go into those sort of competitions that they'd do on kids' shows in the afternoon, the, ch- the program called the Channel Niners, and you'd go in there and you'd spin the barrel and you'd win, I don't know, what a fluffy doll of Humphrey Bear, I suppose. Mm. But um, all of that still hadn't discovered live theatre. And then one Saturday afternoon, for whatever reason, I'm on the bus going to the movies, right? And I must have been thinking about something and it went past the bus stop. And I ended up in town in the city, which was it was probably about three stops forward. So I thought, oh, I won't go to the movies. I'll wander around city, the city. So Adelaide on a Saturday afternoon was like no one was ever there. This mm. is the late 60s. It was like no one. So for whatever reason, I walked right down. I came to Grote Street in Adelaide, where Her Majesty's Theatre was. And I walked past the theatre not even conscious that it was a theatre. Yeah, I think I, well, I probably was conscious that it was a cinema, but it wasn't a cinema, it was a live theatre. And there was a musical on there called The Great Waltz Playing. And as I walked past the doors, I turned and looked inside the theatre foyer and they had just opened the doors for interval. So I saw, heard all this music, this wonderful Strauss music, and I could see these people all standing in lights which was obviously the stage and the curtain was coming down and that was it it just i went what is this what is that was a major turning point so the following saturday i deliberately not go to the pictures and i go and i used to stand outside and mingle with the people at interval i wouldn't go in because there was of no seats and that was you know i was a good boy you weren't, you weren't a second actor no i wasn't a second actor i've done that before though but 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 
I uh, was just transfixed and I just wanted to be with this audience. So anyway, eventually, you know, I went to the box office and they said, oh, I think the cheapest ticket was probably $1.25 for the up in the back of the dress circle. And so I bought a ticket. I saved my money and I bought a ticket and I went and saw The Great Waltz. And that was the first stage musical I'd ever seen in my life. And that was a J.C. Williamson musical. So that was about 66. And by then, then I thought I had to go and see everything else. And after that, that followed was I think Barry Humphreys came in with with one of his one-man shows. Humour went right over my head, but it was live. The next thing was Joyce Grenfell, live, which was a, what I remember vividly was extraordinary from her one-woman show. Then a show came to town called Funny Girl, the star Jill Perryman, and I saw that, and I went back and I saw that about five times. And I got to the point where I wrote a fan letter to Jill Perryman just saying whatever I said and she sent me an autographed photo and a letter which I still have it's framed somewhere but it's at home um, and of course many years later she's a friend and she's worked for me on several occasions in shows and that and then the next show to come in after that uh, was Tony Lamond in Oliver when she played Nancy not long after her husband committed suicide Frank Sheldon so I saw her do that and then I saw Sweet Charity with Nancy Hayes, and again, saw it four or five times. Um, wrote her a fan letter, got a photograph back, a little letter, which I've still got. And again, of course, I worked with Nancy on a few occasions. And, and these women are the start of our musical theatre in to- Australia. To- totally, they're, they're the gods. The, they're the they Australian are the, stars. Without a doubt, without a doubt. They, that when you know, we managed to keep those women up there and keep them employed, and they'd go from one big musical to the next. Um, and they were, you know, I think now the last of that breed, really, which is sad. But uh, they were true stars when they were, you know, they, they, J.C. Williamson's told them how they had to dress and how they had to present themselves and all of that. That was wonderful. Um, so that's how I started off. And then... So did you have a, um, a dalliance with performance? Did you get involved with any oh, community theatre? Oh, I did. Theater, yeah, or? I did, actually. Yeah. I got a job. I, I was asked to do audition for a production of Showboat in Adelaide for the Mayfair Light Opera Company. Yes, that played the arts theatre in Adelaide, in Angus Street, Adelaide. And I was in the uh, ensemble for that. And I used to... We did about, I don't know, ten performances... And I was sort of shoved in the background and that and played a couple of different roles in show, but not principal roles, ensemble roles. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? I think I did, but not enough until the director came up to me and he said when we, they went to audition for the next show, he said, John, we've decided we don't think you should be a performer. We think you could be what we call an assistant stage manager. So basically I didn't have it as a performer. I thought I did. Oh, I thought I, what you were going to say is you were wearing too much makeup. No, no, no. That's been a few other people I've known in my life. That happened to you, didn't it? Yes, <laughs> I know. Right. First preview of an ideal husband. That's right. Yeah. Um, Why is he wearing so much makeup? Is that? Did the producer say that to you? The producer ferried that, Fro- that Not that John Frost said John that. John Frost to you. said did that. He, he ferried it back through the uh, through David Lynch. Oh, is that right? Mm. The assistant director, associate director. But that's good. You've obviously got your eye on the pulse with every corner of a show. Yes. Yeah. So it, well, you know, I went through. I was a flyman for a while. I was wardrobe. Were your parents happy about a career in the arts? Well, when when I decided to, I I got a job 
as a dresser. The first grown-up professional job at Her Majesty's Theatre was on a musical called Mame. With Gailey Byrne. With Gailey Byrne. And Mary Hardy. Mary Hardy, yeah. Sheila Bradley, man called Jeff Hiscock, Marianne Severn. It goes on. Yvonne Matthew goes on and on and on. Uh, John Frawley. Oh, God. Keith Lee. Anyway, lots of, lots of really good Australian actors. And Gailey Byrne was an American import. Anyway, to cut a long story short, um, the um, we I got a job on that, and it was about to go to Perth. And the show, I tried to get... I wasn't good at school. Academically, I wasn't very good. Well, I didn't think I was very good. Well, it just didn't interest me. Um, and so I went to my parents, and I said, look, the show's closing. I'm earning... Good money. I'm earning $35 a week as a dresser. God, they, I could tell you now what a dresser earns. I wouldn't mind doing that job now. Um, <laughs> so I was earning $35 a week as a dresser and eight shows a week. And um, I asked the stage manager, Sue Natras, if I could go to Perth. And she said, I would give you a job over there, but you've got to get yourself there. That was yeah. generally the way, wasn't it, with the firm? Did the cast have to make their way to various No, 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 cities? that was all paid. All it was paid, all paid, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And they were all on, everybody was on living away in those days. Uh, well, in my the days when I was there, they were. Um, but, you know, the per diems weren't what they are now. And, you know, you went by train everywhere, so which was great fun. Mm. Instead, no one ever flew other than probably the stage manager or the head or, or the technical manager, because they had to get over there before the set got there. So the cast would always go by train, or they make their own way there if they wanted to and got an allowance. But, so I asked my parents about, uh, I wanted to leave school and go. So they said, whatever makes you happy makes us happy. And I remember that vividly, and I thought, God, I'm lucky. So. I get it. They come and see me off at the train station, Adelaide train station, with the whole company. And, you know, all these glamorous girls getting on the train, all dressed up in their nines, which, again, and all the boys very respectively dressed. And so I'm with a company of 35 and me. And anyway, in those days, you know, you all had sleepers in the each of the compartments. It's like that scene Funny Girl. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, totally. Uh, except I didn't sing Don't Rain On My Parade at the train station. Um, and halfway across, not even halfway across, a third of the way there, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and the, the main company had taken over the dining cart or the, the sort of loud cart that there was the dining room and then there was another cart which was sort of like a big lounge room with a piano in it. So every show tune was always played by, you know, maybe the assistant musical director or whatever, and the ensemble would get up there and sing every show tune, talk about theatre, and it was like, for me, dying going to heaven. It was yeah. like, there is this... You, you found your tribe. Totally. Yeah. These, there's 35 misfits, and I all believe that any of us in this business are misfits. I don't care what you do in it. We are all a bit odd for doing it. Um, and it is the circus life, as you said earlier. Um, Fell in love, and at two o'clock in the morning, there's a knock at the door. Now, I'm 15, right? I think I was about to turn 16. And I knock at the door, and it was the conductor, and he said, your name John Frost? And I said, yes. They said, your father's just died. You have to get off the train. 
Well, other than going into shock, now my dad was about 65. They didn't take you out of the room or anything? Or? No, no, I was in bed. Right, okay, right. Sorry. I, it was about was two in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was about two in the morning. I was in bed and they, not, and they said, we can't stop the train, but there is another freight train coming the other way. We will slow down and you, we will throw your bags onto the freight train and you'll have to jump as the trains crossed each other, but they'd go very slow. So I had to jump from one train going west and the other one going back to Adelaide. So I jumped into a freight cart, just a wooden freight cart. It's devastating. Yeah. But it's a great scene for the biopic. It is. Isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. It is. <laughs> Huckleberry Finn. Uh, and all there was there, and I remember it vividly, was just bales of wheat and straw. So I slept. Now, remember I'm the age I was, 15, not terribly worldly. Um, and I sort of, I was in shock, right? I was in shock. I must have been. And so I slept, or thought I slept, all the way back to Adelaide. Picked up at the train station by my brother, I think my older brother, and then stayed two days. They had the funeral, which was awful. Um, and then I had no money left. Well, what money I had left was probably, I don't know, $15. So my mother was in this, you know, it was like all I wanted to do was get out of Adelaide. I just wanted to run away. From all the grief. From all the grief, yeah. which, you know, we all know now you'd, Get a counsellor. It's not the best thing to do. No, it's not the best thing to do. So I caught a bus, found out, no, I had $15, that's right. And I think there was a child's fair. So I lied about my age, said I was 12, big, tall, I was very big for 12. And I got a kid's fair across the Nullarbor, right, on Pioneer buses. And that was a treat. That was, oh my God. I remember. And now my eating habits were very odd. You know, I wouldn't, the thought of eating bacon and eggs was hostile to me. So it was very, brought up very plain food, you know, Vegemite steak, and toast. Ve Vegemite and toast, mm. coon cheese and toast sort of thing. You know, it was like very, very plain. So I remember getting to this one city I hadn't eaten for, and I think the trip was about three days or something, getting there. And she said, do you want eggs on toast, bacon and eggs? whatever, whatever, and a really rough woman at this sort of roadhouse. I said, no, I'll just have a cheese sandwich, please. So I remember vividly having a white bread craft cheese sandwich was sort of all the food I had. And I remember then eventually getting to Perth and the show had opened, but they'd kept my job open for me. Or the show had previewed, I can't, I don't, maybe we didn't even do a preview. Um, or it was delayed, I think, because a piece of scenery fell out of the air and hurt two dancers in one of the scenes or mm. something. It was This was at the old His Majesty's Theatre. Right, right. um, and so I rejoined that show and stayed at the um, His Majesty's Hotel. That oh, used yes, to be a which hotel. Was which was Yeah, which was fantastic in those mm. days because you could stay there for, I don't know, $12 a week or something and you'd get fantastic roast meals and all of that was brilliant. So I stayed there. Then I went to Brisbane and again, got my own way to Brisbane. With Maine? With Maine. And I, the, the situation was, I think I got a, I, I, I must have paid my own way to Adelaide and then Frank Howes, the stage manager, drove me from Adelaide to Brisbane. And then we got to 
Brisbane and they wouldn't give me a job because they said it was all it's a union theatre and so therefore this was my distaste for unions started I think right um did your mum last very long? Did she live to... Yeah, yeah, she lived to well, well into her 80s. She died in 99. Right. So she saw the success Great. that I had. Um, and do you still think about your dad? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. God, now, now you know, when you think 1966 to 19... What are we now? 2020, it's a lifetime away. You've got photographs of him, Milk. Yeah, yeah. Can yeah, you start yeah. to see yourself looking like him? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But he, you know... That, it's a different world, you know. Well, I don't want to say I'm not close to my family. I'm very close to my family, but all I've got now is really a brother and a sister left. Right, yes, um, and they visit me. My brother does. My sister I haven't seen since. And that's a shared history. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you we remember, can't find with other people. No, but mm. but but also, you know, when I left home at fifteen, I left Adelaide, and they've always lived in Adelaide. So I haven't. My life since fifteen has been the world, Do you think not you've, Adelaide. You found a surrogate family in theatre people? Totally, yeah. without a doubt, and I think a lot of people do. Yeah. And I think in this office here, you know, we have 12 employees here. They're all freaks, which is great, which I <laughs> encourage, if you know what I mean. Yeah. The freakier you are, you're more likely to work for GFO. Um, so, <laughs> MAME, because of sentimental value, or mm. even because it's just mm. a, such mm. a great show, mm. have you thought of restaging a yeah, production totally, name? totally. I think the world has. Yeah, yeah, the problem is it's the leading lady. We just don't have those people. I don't believe we have... I don't. I can't think of anybody that I'd pay $160 to really go and see it do in Australia, an Australian do it. I can't... Don't get excited with anyone here about... So you'd, you'd import someone? Yeah, totally. <laughs> is that the wise thing to do? Totally. Considering um, yeah, because the that, reactions that you've had probably all through your career? Yeah, because I believe our industry should be an industry, an international industry. And I think that if I wanted to work in America or I wanted to work in England or wherever or in Australia, I should be allowed to do it. And I think that uh, the way the entertainment industry is now with music, certainly film, enough people, and certainly the theatre now, there's enough people working overseas. It's minuscule with what we bring in here compared to the, Ameri the Australians that are making a career in America, not necessarily on Broadway, but, you know, regionally, all of that. Mm. Um, and, and certainly in the UK, I think, if anything, there's an imbalance. But I haven't got the figures in front of me, so that's yeah. a probably sweeping statement. But I think that, you know, if you want to work in America, you can now. Tell me about Book of Mormon, because you copped a lot of flack on getting those two leads out to start the show. Mm, mm. Uh, is that a case of you were contractually obliged by the Americans to to use those boys? No, or no. you just couldn't find them? No, in no, no. We can honestly say, and this is becoming a problem even more and more now, is that when the, when you do these shows, or even even if it's not coming in from America, at the end of the day, the buck's got to stop with the producer. But the producer has to have respect for his director and his creative team you know the, so the director the designers the lighting whatever so you're employing them to do a job so therefore you um you want to go down that road and they they, they if they come over here and they've already worked on the show in america or in england and that they know the show a lot better than me i maybe i've seen it four times in new york just say I still don't know the ins and outs of the show 
whatever show. So the creative team come over here and they sit there and they, we try to show them, you know, the best of everybody. Um, and they go, well, we can't cast that role. Or those two people don't fit into what we expect. So therefore, as a producer, you can say, well, look, you know, can't we just give it another, yeah, okay, we'll do another round. Or we'll, you know, when you go back, we'll send some videotapes over of people that we, that we'll get to a point in that, but inevitably if they come back and they say it's not going to work and that's happened several times on different shows and that you know I will go right I've got to think of what's good for the show not what's good for the actor the actors it's about what's good for that show that I've just spent 10 million dollars on or about to spend 10 million well that's the other thing it's a huge mm. investment yeah, financially that's right. for yeah, you isn't yeah, it so yeah, you've yeah. got to be and in, inevitably assured it's it's not about stars Sometimes it is, but... Well, Paige O'Hara in South Pacific, yeah, I mean, she'd really yeah. only voiced the, the voice of Belle and Beauty and the Beast. Yes, but going back Mind on... Mind you, she was pretty terrific. Yeah, I thought she was good too. Yeah. But the, uh, the thing is that going back on that, we, we, we'd asked certain Australians to do that show and they turned us down. They didn't want to do it. There's big star Australians... That were because right I assumed right. they thought it was old hat Rogers and Hammerstein at that point. That they, Rogers and Hammerstein yeah, wasn't sexy. At they, the time. they they may have they may have. I didn't go into that, but they, you know, even to the the King and I, Haley Mills, Haley Mills. That show was a, an Australian director, two Australian directors, three Australian directors were asked to do it, and they all turned it down. And so I eventually got an English director to direct it, Christopher Renshaw, that came out and eventually did five shows for me. And it's going to do another one in 12 months' time, I think. Um, and same with, uh, with um, the casting of Hayley. We asked... That, that, that role, that Mrs Anna was originally... Uh, a Deb, Debbie Byrne was asked to do it. She turned it down. And John Bell was going to be the king. And he turned it down. And so, therefore, I thought, fine. I'll import South Pacific. I can't remember because Emil de Beck was also he was an import, important. and the Bloody Mary was an import. The mm. three, and I think that that by that time, we. That's right. I wanted it to be authentic, and I wanted the Bloody Mary to be of some sort of colour. Mm. Right, you can't. Polynesian. Yeah, you can't black yeah. up that role anymore, you know. That was certainly Ros Ryan, who was an Afro-American uh, actress, who was not right. She was fantastic in the role, but, you know, colour-wise, she was not the right... Well, but Nationality. No, yeah. no. And then we had a real Frenchman playing Emile de Beck, and we had an American playing that role. But that production was, looking back now, was probably sexless and not a lot of danger between the two leads there seemed to be a lot of denim and baby oil on the uh, the there, male chorus there was <laughs> there was i remember it i saw pictures of it again the other day um but uh then we went on to hello dolly in, during that period and we had jill perryman and uh warren mitchell. warren mitchell and then warren only did in melbourne i think and then ron hedrick took it over it was terrific mm -hmm. What about um, recently with My Fair Lady? Yes. A couple of Englishmen. Yes. Um, did you look at Australian actors? Uh, 
briefly. Um, I think it was always in my head that I wanted an English actor for it, and I we uh, it was originally offered to a big big Australian star here. Well, it was offered to Anthony Waller, and Julie met with him, and we all thought it was a good idea. And then Anthony changed his mind, and then we offered it. We went through the Alice, we went through the Richard Roxburghs, we went through all those sort of top Australian. Jeffrey Rush, I believe. Well, that was the rumour. No, Jeffrey Rush was never... Kelsey Grammer? I heard that too. Uh, Kelsey Grammer's name was up there. You're yeah. right. Um, but that never got passed. I, don't, I think we phoned his agent and the agent was being too difficult. So we said, forget that. Yeah. Um, uh, and then it really came down to it was a friend of Julie's um, that suggested... Um, Alex. Alex. Yeah. And... Funnily enough, I went home that night and was watching something on the ABC and he was on it. And then everything I watched on the ABC over the next month, he was in it because he was well, he's one of those actors that is never out of work. But serendipity. It's yeah, like that's meant right. To be. It's yeah. the universe telling you yeah, this is the this, He's right. And then, you know, of course, he did that wonderful movie with uh, Maggie Smith where he plays... Um, Lady in the Van. Yeah, Lady in the Van. Alan Bennett. Yeah, so he came over and he was a, a complete joy to work with. And we had some pretty, you know, we had Robin Nevin in that company and we had Reg Livermore. And they're very, you know, they very proudly waved the Australian flag. And to this day, they're still in touch with Alex. They're great mates, mm. all of them. You know, it's a very tight company, that company. Um, yeah. Um, thank you for addressing that because mm. I'm sure listeners would say, ask him about the imports, um, mm. which I have now. And you've, mm. you've mm. had a chance to mm. address that. So, mm. so great. So, um, dresser, your assistant wardrobe manager, yeah. you're working your way up. Up the ladder. Up, yeah. up the ladder. Consciously, or are you just no, falling into that position? By then, yeah. I've got, I know where I'm going. Right. And I always knew in my life, regardless of show business, that there's, as that song from Sweet Charity goes, there's got to be something better than this. Yes. You know, Maybe dream your dream. That's right. Yeah. And I always was, I'm very competitive, you know, very competitive. And um, there was always a path there that I knew how long I should stay in a job for, invariably. Now, are you seeking advice from anyone? You're going to use soon. No, 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 no. This is all me. No, it's all me. Yeah, I always knew, and I could never understand school friends. You know, where kids would say, "Oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor, or I'm going to be a truck driver, or I'm going to be drive a train, or whatever." I always knew. I knew it would be in the entertainment field, but I didn't know what. I didn't know if I was going to be a performer or whatever. But when I got onto the thing of this producer thing, this is where I've got to get to. You know, but I, first I've got to be a stage manager, I've got to be a company manager, I've got to work for a, a theatre, you know, and I've got to... This was all in the plan, the ladder. So we're still pretty low down, but I've got to tell you one story that we'll come back and talk about in a minute. When I was doing MAME, and it was about the rules of the theatre. And this is one thing Sue Natras and Frank Howe taught me, was that you, you never sit on props. You never, if you're an actor, you never sit in your costume. Or eat in your costume. Or eat in your costume, mm -hmm. you'd know that. And you never run backstage. For one reason or own, whatever happened, this one night, I must have been super relaxed talking to somebody in the wings. And I, I nearly missed a quick change cue which was on the OP side and I remember running from the prompt side to the OP side behind a psych and Gailey Byrne who was singing uh, 
If You Walked Into My Life, which is a beautiful ballad from me, all through that song you could hear clump, 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 and the psych going, <laughs> like waving in the wind. And she's got a big 11 o'clock number, like doing it. So then I get my butt kicked like you wouldn't believe, and I'm told to go to Miss Burns' room, dressing room at the end of the show and apologise. So now I'd never spoken to Gailey Byrne in my life, but you know, this is probably my third or fourth week being a dresser backstage in a real theatre. And so I, at the end of the show, I timidly knocked on her door. Yes, oh Miss Byrne, it's John Frost, I'm one of the dressers, come in. So I go in there and I said, I'd just like to, and she was sitting at the mirror with her short hair and in her last costume, or the jacket was off and the dresser was standing in the corner, her personal dresser. And I said, I'd just like to apologize. She said, well, you won't do it again, will you? I said, no, Miss Byrne. She said, well, this t just take heed. And this is one of the first lessons in the theater. Don't run backstage. I said, thank you, Miss Byrne, and left the room. So that was fine. So I left at that. So can I zip forward 40 years and I take a production to Her Majesty's Theatre in Adelaide, like 40 years later, maybe 50 years later, 40 years. And it stars Angela Lansbury. Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy. And I go backstage and all the, and I hadn't been in that theatre for years, and all the ghosts come back. And oh my God, I go to dressing room run to knock on the door. With Miss Lansbury. And Angela, and knock on the door, hello. I said, oh, it's John, Angie. Uh, and I go in and there she is sitting there in that same seat, well, not the same seat, but in the seat facing the same mirror that Gailey Byrne was sitting at. And I couldn't believe it. It was like, this is so freaky. And for your listeners that don't know, of course, Angela Lansbury was the original Mame on Broadway. And when they did in Australia, the one I was involved with, it was a replica production. So it was really quite... Wonderful, but freaky for me to see Angela sitting in that same seat that Gailey Bernard sat in 40-odd years ago and me knocking at the door at 15 and now I'm whatever I was. Anyway, bit of, I loved it. Um, those lessons, you know, you only have to make one mistake and you never, ever forget it. Um, no. Ideal husband again. Yeah. You, you probably got a stage report, so you probably heard about yeah. this. I was in the dressing room and, and mobiles were just, I just got a mobile. Yeah, I think, yeah, and I yeah. was obsessed with my mm. mobile. I get a knock on the door from the stage management. You're on. I was supposed to deliver um, teacups at this right, tea party yeah, yeah, yeah. for Googie yeah. Withers, Stephanie Beecham and Josephine Burns. Yep. But I was late. So mm. fortunately, Tony Kogan, who was the butler, yes. stepped in and delivered did the it, first part. It. And then I arrived and did what I had to do. And I was shaking. And <laughs> yeah, that was I terrible. thought, God, I've got to have to apologise to yeah, these yeah, women Yeah, because it's like the end of the world. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. And we were going to hmm? Googie's, Googie's hmm. dressing room. Uh, hello, Googie. Um, I need to apologise. for. Oh, that's all right. Darling, I love it when things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> when things go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. yeah. But just you know, wonderful stuff. So, where were we up to? Um, your um, your ascension to yeah. uh, to be a to be a producer. So, do you, you work in Hello Dolly? Because I mean, you talk about the ghosts of theatres. I remember there was a gag you used to do about Carol Cook. No, it was Roland Rocicelli right. and I were in Wellington, New Zealand, and we we're touring with a, a play called Sleuth, which starred uh, British movie star Richard Todd, and an actor called. Gary Waldhorn, who went on to do 
some what is it the d- d- dimly thing you know the vicar of dimly v- v- vicar of dimly yeah yeah he played the bald head fella in that that was her sort of mate in that anyway we're in new zealand and we were bored and that and i was unpacking richard richard's costumes richard todd's costumes and he uh he had beautiful several row, row suits that he bought out that for the character that he played in that and he had these beautiful brogue shoes and inside the shoes you thought I would have known uh, there were these pieces of wood and I did, I thought they were just sort of like stuffing you know <laughs> so I threw them away oh, no. and then I was t- he said to me where are my lifts and I said your your lifts because he was a short man short in stature and so I went to Roland and I said he's asking for some lifts he said well yeah he wears lifts where are they I said, well, what do they look like? And he said, well, they should be moulded. I said, yeah, yeah, I know where they are. He said, well, where are they? I said, oh, I threw them out. I thought they were just... So that was like... And yeah, as you know, lifts are custom-made and they cost a fortune. Mm. Very expensive. So that didn't start off very well. But anyway, we had this gag going that Hello Dolly, after it did its Australian tour, went to New Zealand, which I think it did. I don't know if it played Wellington. And there was a, a sort of a door backstage at uh the opera house the grand opera house it was called in wellington that sort of went nowhere but it was always sort of locked up in that and i was trying to f- find out what was behind it and roland said who's what are you doing i said oh i think carol cook's in here <laughs> and they locked her in here at the end of jc williamson's hello dolly tour in 1967 so i'd do this silly gag where i'd do the voice of carol cook being locked in this closet at the Grand Opera House in Wellington, New Zealand. That's where her career finished. Anyway, bit of in. Roland thought it was funny. It was. I thought it was hysterical. Yeah, it's hysterical. It's now, Roland, I did an episode with recently, yeah. and he tells me that he gave you one of your first jobs as stage manager. Yeah, he Winnie did. the Pooh. He did. He yeah. did. We. He, that's right. He was the stage director, and I was the ASM, or stage manager, on Winnie the Pooh, the pantomime. When we did that production on top of the hair set at the Metro Theatre in Melbourne, uh, which was the Palace Theatre, which is now that dilapidated, um, just around the corner from the Princess Theatre, the top of Burke Street, dilapidated uh, rock venue. Anyway, yeah, I did. And then I went and worked I worked with me again, I think. Oh, on Kingfisher with Googie and John in 1978. And Frank Thring. And Frank Thring, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, you're um, working with, I mean, I think that was with Harry and Miller. It Winnie was, yeah, yeah. But you're working with Harry M, you're working with Ken Brodziak, mm-hmm. you're working with Malcolm C. Cook, mm-hmm. producers of note at the time. Yeah, yeah. What are you learning from working with those men? Well, I think somebody once said to me, the best thing you could do is just shut up and don't say anything. Just listen. And that's great, fantastic advice. I know it sounds old-fashioned, but really, in the early, early days, even back in the days of MAME, at the age of 16, 17, I was so nervous about being around adults and older people and that, but I was transfixed at what they had to say. And it was that thing of just shutting up. And, and I learned a lot of not how to do things by just observing and, and being, I suppose, street, a bit learning to be street smart. So with Brodziak, you were a um, an I, office boy. Or? Yeah, I was an office boy with Ken Brodziak at Aztec so Service, running well, messages and yeah. What it was, it was, it was well, it was really interesting because I used to do um, this. So we're in the early seventies now. I'd done Canterbury Tales as a wardrobe master. I toured with Emily Williams, the great uh, playwright. 
with his one-man Charles Dickens show. I did Barry Humphreys. Anyway, it's a whole, whole lot of things I'd, I'd worked on. And then I got this job for Harry M. Miller in Melbourne at the Playbox Theatre. And I was an usher. And I was tearing tickets on the show at night. And we were doing Butterflies Are Free with Miriam Carlin and a few other things. And at the during the day, I was an usher down at the Metro Theatre because Harry at night had hair on. And during the day, he showed the movie of this Russian version of Swan Lake. And it was this, I don't know, the Kirov Ballet. So you couldn't get a ticket for love or money for, for the Kirov movies. And we did three a day. And then at night, they'd fly the screen out and they'd do hair on the stage. Right. It was fascinating. You know, talk about utilising a space. One extreme to go. Yeah, 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 totally. Anyway, so I was sort of usher on that. And then Gary Van Egmont, who was my boss, who was Harry M. Miller's general manager, said, look... Ken Brodziak wants an office boy three days a week. Do you want to do it and, you know, take you off the floor instead of ushering and do that? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I went down there and it was Malcolm Cook. It was a publicist called Eileen O'Shea. And it was Mr. Brodziak and Mr. Brodziak's assistant called Lurl Frooms. And the stories I could tell you from that office will we'll go on for another six hours, but they were so funny. You know, Lurl, who was... Probably, I didn't know much about her background, but she probably, in those days, was in her 40s, had very straight hair, spoke in a monotone voice, and she'd say, hello, lovey, how are you? And I'd go, oh, good, Miss Frooms, call me Lil. And i say, oh, is Mr. Brodzett? Yes, KB, she'd call him KB. KB's in today, and he'll be with you shortly, and he wants to show you around the office. And I go, okay, fine. So anyway, so I'm sitting out front at reception, that, and Mr. Brodziak comes in, because everyone had to call each other Mr. Brodziak, Mr. Cook, or Mr. Ginn, Robert Ginn, or whatever. It was always Mr. Or, and Miss Frooms. There was no, you know, casual names. Miss O'Shea. And above Ken's office, he had, outside his office, he had a red light. And if the red light was on, you weren't allowed to go in because it meant he was negotiating a deal, right? So no one was allowed to go in. But that then everybody had, uh, he had this very archaic uh, system of um, buzzers. So Miss Frooms was one buzz. Mr. Cook was two buzzers. Let's say I was three buzzers and Miss O'Shea was four buzzers. So if you heard bzz, 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 one, two, that's me. You go, you rush in to the office. But you've got to make sure the red light's not on. Because even if you buzz in and the red light's on, you're not allowed to go in. So nervous Nelly, me, like I'd be going, you know, the buzzer would be going, bzz, 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 you know, all the time. One, two, three, four. Oh, that's Miss, that's Miss O'Shea. It's okay. So at times he went in. There was one occasion where I'd been there maybe six months and he, he buzzed me and he said, uh, I went in and I said, yes, Mr. Brodziak. He said, now, he said, I believe it's your birthday on Friday. Is that correct? I said, that's right, Mr. Brodziak. How old are you? I said, oh, I'd be uh, 19. Oh, 19. That's very young. I said, that's right, Mr. Brodziak. And he said, and your mother's coming over. Is that true from Adelaide? <laughs> so he'd got all this from Lil Frooms because I'd go yada, yada, yada yeah. to Lil. And so she had told him. He said, well, good. He said, does your mother know who Dame Anna Nagel is? And I go, well, yes, Mr. Brodziak. He said, well, look, I'm going to give you two free tickets. 
for your birthday to take your mother to see Dame Anna Nagel and Derek Nimmo and Johnny Farnham in Charlie Girl at Her Majesty's Theatre start at 2 o'clock the matinee. So he'd speak like it was a TV ad or a radio ad, right? So I'd go, oh, that's really wonderful. Come and see me on Friday and I'll give you the tickets. Okay, thank you. Comes Friday, you know, bzz, 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 races into the office, doesn't mention anything about the tickets. And I'm thinking, oh, mum arrives this afternoon and I've got the tickets for tomorrow. You know, that was a big deal, Charlie girl. So anyway, eventually, bzz, 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 I go in, it's like five o'clock. He says, those tickets I gave you, it's too late, you can't have them because it's a full house tomorrow, I've sold them. That was it. Took them back. <laughs> oh, I didn't even take them back, I didn't get them. So she never get to, got to see... Got to see Charlie? Or didn't get to see Charlie, you're sold out. Fantastic. So he'd do that and then he'd do one, another story. He'd say, he'd come out to my little desk. My job was to get the stamps, you know, put the postage stamps on the letters. So all the letters typewritten letters were put into the envelopes and then left me and I had to put the stamps on them and I had to take them to the post box. And he'd come out and he'd say, how many letters you're taking to the post box? And I'd go, oh, it's all these, Mr. Brother. Well, how many are there? And I'd go, oh, it's 23. Right, oh, 23. And I think stamps were like five cents in those days. So he'd go, he said, now, we've got to cut down on the stamps. And I'd go, oh, what do you mean? He said... Has Miss Frooms told you how we protect and look after our stamps here? And I said, no. He went, oh, well, I'll give you a tip. Go and get a, go into the kitchen and get a saucer of water. And I'd go, okay. So I'd go into the kitchen and got a saucer of water, come back. And then he says, now, get me some old envelopes with stamps on them. He said, right, what you do is you go. And so he teared the the envelope corner off right he said now you get that and just check that the black mark isn't too far on the stamp that's the you know the stamp seal yeah and then you put that in the water and leave it there overnight i go oh yes mr project and then the stamp will come off very easily and then the next day when you post it he said you can use it again (laughs) you just make sure there's not too many and get a bit of clag glue and put on the back (laughs) True, true. Then he said to me once, so that's how we did that. Then he said, um, I need you to go and do some errands for me. And he was a big gambler. And he had this bookmaker, bookie, in, in the city. And he'd say, now I want you to go down to pick up the returns, which were leftover tickets for that day's performance of Charlie Girl. And I had to physically go to Myers on the seventh floor, um, Hotel Australia, about four places and I had to go and collect these leftover tickets that would go on be door sales that night and take them down to the JCW booking hall at Her Majesty's and he'd have he'd say get me my um, petty cash box so I'd go out and I'd bring in this rattly tin like money box you know those sort of old cash boxes and he'd open his drawer and he'd go click 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 and find the key this rusty old key put it in there and then that would be full of cash right and then there would be a, a key right and no the key was in his drawer that's right and then he'd open this cash box and all this stuff would come out and then he'd come out with a coupon and the coupon oh, you can probably still buy them um when you get on the tram each stop 
you've got to get it the conductor used to put a hole in it so yeah. no different to when you go to your favorite coffee shop coffee and they shop, get yeah. one of those things yeah. so you coupon and he'd go right he said now you've got to go there you can walk that bit you have to get a tram there okay he says okay and then he'd count one two three four how many holes had been punched and so i'd do my errands drop his money off with an envelope which i don't know a couple of hundred bucks in it in those days and drop that off at this funny little office up upstairs wherever to his bookmaker and then i'd go back and he'd get, take the card off me and go one two three four six there's an extra hole been punched <coughs> what do you need the extra hole but well mr brodzak it was raining oh <laughs> so i got got into trouble for taking the tram from one point to, to the other but he was really sort of I think he liked playing mean. I don't think right. he was mean. I think he was he was an eccentric but loved to have the image of being, you know, tough and, and all that. But he was a wonderful, wonderful character. And I remember when he died, just before he died, I had revived a production of The Sound of Music with um, Lisa McCune. And there was an article and it said, you know, Ken Brunziak, died at the age of 86 or whatever he was one of his last uh, meetings i had with him meaning whoever was doing the interview said are you scared of dying and he said oh god no he said i can't wait i'm paraphrasing all yes, this yes. um I, I i i look forward to it because the thought of having to sit through another revival of the sound of music would send me crazy so <laughs> and i thought that's my production <laughs> So one last he didn't deep. care. Yeah, yeah, he didn't care. No, that's hysterical. Mm. Um, tell me about that infamous production of Applause that you worked on. Yeah, I worked on. I was only an usher on that. Yeah, you that were was selling programs. Yeah, with it? yeah Eve Arden yeah, and, and um, Judy Canelli. Judy Canelli, and that was at the Metro Theatre in Sydney, and it was directed by these two gay gentlemen that were obviously in love with show business, but didn't have the money, or they conned people into thinking they had the money to do it. And she came out, and I remember sitting through the opening night and scenery was crashing into each other and all of that. But the performances were fantastic. It was Ron Chaloner, it was, oh God, it was Judy Canelli playing Eve, and Eve Arden. Um, and I think it only ran like three or four performances. And then she paid everybody- The company out. The company the, out, the, you know, to keep it. Yeah, 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 that, yeah, yeah. But it was, you know, applause needs a big, big lady, you know, to pull that show off. And she did extremely well. And it was really the start of Judy Canelli's career, in a way, yeah. that show. Yeah. Uh, how did you meet Ashley Gordon? I met Ashley. Jill Perryman introduced me to Ashley. And Ashley, I was the stage manager of a play called The Kingfisher, with Googie Withers and John McCallum. And I, we were at the Comedy Theatre. So it was 1978, around October. September, October. And Annie, the musical, was playing at Her Majesty's Theatre. And I was over at the stage door picking up the mail from Her Majesty's to take to the comedy, because that's where all the mail used to sit in uh, in the stage door. And I, as I went in, the matinee was coming out, was out. And Jill Perryman came out the door and she had just finished playing Miss Hannigan and that. And I'd known her by then, I must have. 
And she said, oh, darling, you must meet somebody. And she introduced me to Ashley at the stage door. So he was just a fan of her? No, or? no, he was working at the comedy theatre for Ken Brodziak because Ken had moved his offices into... So Ashley sort of picked up my job. And, um, and um, he sort of doing a bit of everything. And there's a great story there where on the opening night of Annie, this is the J.C. Williamson Aztec Services production that Ken Brozek was involved in, the programs arrived. And the program cover, tell me if you know this, but the program cover was Annie. There was a big logo of Annie the Word and the character, the cartoon character standing behind it with the dog in front of it sort of thing. That was the image of it. Just leaning on it. Yeah, leaning on it. Correct, correct. So the program arrives for the first night, right, of Annie um, from Playbill. And for whatever reason, Mr. Brodziak goes over there and he says, I want to see the program before, you know, this is, they had all arrived, the programs. And for whatever reason, they didn't, um, Annie's hair, the ink didn't take and it was white. He said, I don't believe it. He said, you can't call this show Annie. We'd have to call it Granny. <laughs> Because it looked like this little old woman. Because So he said to Ashley, right, get over there. There's 2,000 programs. He called Ashley up to his office, bought out the, the cash deposit box. He didn't have to colour them in. He said, here's 15 cents. Go across to Mr. Jones at the paper shop across the road and buy a yellow text to colour. And Ashley had to colour them in. And so, and he, so first Ken shows him how to do it. Don't go over the line. And it's like, you know, a school lesson for, you know, a grown-up, like how to, how to text her in the hair. And if you're lucky enough, and Frank Van Stratton's probably got one somewhere. I know I've got one somewhere at home. You can actually see it was Ashley. It's the texter. And it was Ashley colouring in 2,000 programmes. Fantastic. From Playbill, that Ken made him do it. There's obviously a shared passion for theatre between the two of you. Yes. D- did you hit it off straight away? Yeah, no, we did. And we, we that's when it we he came to... We used to talk a lot. And I'd say, oh, look, you, you know, that's right. I think Ken was winding down and ba- basically Ashley was thinking about coming to Sydney. And I said, well, you should come into Sydney. I've got a spare bedroom. Come and stay at my place until you find a place. Anyway, he does that. The first thing he gets is it's the publicising the return of the America's Cup. You know, the, was it Challenger? Or I can't remember what the ship was called, the sailing boat now. Australia the, 2. Australia 2, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's on display around the country. And um, Ashley did that. Ashley was a very good, extremely good publicist. Um, and so he did that. And so he publicised that. So he, you know, made, I don't know what he made, maybe he made 10 grand out of it. Um, and so he had that as a fallback on that. So he became a, sort of a freelance publicist for a few things. Then Camelot with Richard Harris came to town with Marina Pryor. He did that. This is while he was still staying at my place. So then we used to talk about things and we talked about, you know, we could do this. And where was I working? I must have been at the the Marion Street... No, I had been at the Marion Street Theatre running that for two or three years. And then I went to Kinsella's and ran Kinsella's nightclub for two or three years for Leon Fink. See, this is the extraordinary thing that people don't realise. Yeah. The amount of work and... And the variety and of it, yeah. variety that you've had. Yeah, yeah. And so I did that. Um, 
And so then Ashley came into my life and we did that and we talked about setting up a business. And we, we, I said, well, we, we need to do, um, we should do a play. And so Ashley discovered the play, the gay play, Bent, by Martin Sherman. Martin Sherman. Wonderful, wonderful play. Anyway, we booked the Seymour Centre and it was going to happen. John Tasker, the Australian director, was going to direct it. I don't think we got down to casting it. We did all the investment documents and I think then it was costing about $60,000 to put on. God. I found the budget just recently. Um, I believe you used to pay a lot of stuff on credit card. Well, I'll get to that. Because we had no money. No. Um, And so... We decided to do that. Then all of a sudden, it became they wanted to sign contract, and we had to pay a deposit of five thousand dollars. We never had five thousand dollars. This is to the rights holders. Yeah, yeah, the rights holders and to the uh, theatre, you know, or something, the Seymour Centre. So I said, we need our own theatre. So anyway, cut a long story short, um, he, we drop it or we put it on hold, and he comes home one day and he says to me, "Have you heard of the Footbridge Theatre?" I said, yeah, yeah, I think that's at the Sydney University, isn't it, or New South Wales? He said, no, Sydney. I said, I oh, forget it. It's, a, you know, it's a lecture theatre. He said, no, it's not. It's got a fly tower. It's got. A... I said, no one ever goes there. He said, you yeah, know, no, no, they do, they do films on Sunday night and they do the odd uni review there mid-year graduate, yeah, mid-year reviews. I went, oh, okay. So we then set up. Uh, let's go. Let's. Throw your job in at Kinsella's. We can t- use the publicity, publicity gigs that you're doing as a, a starting to put some money together. I had $5,000 on my Visa card or bank card or whatever it was called in those days. And so we decided not to go with Bent. And so we get a lease on this theatre, right? So we negotiated a lease that was basically nothing. It cost us maybe... I'm making it up, but let's say it's $700 a week for the first five years. And the view was, after the first five years, if we can't make a go of it, we don't deserve it anyway. But the deal was the rent would go up after five years or three years or whatever. Were you in partnership with Noel Ferrier? Then Um. we go... (laughs) Then we go... I I was in... uh, I'd worked at the Elizabethan Theatre Trust and I got to know Noel really well and we had a great relationship. I just even miss him to this day. And, you know, I said to him, what do you think about the Footbridge scene? He said, oh, I think it's a wonderful idea. He said, I tell you what, I'll give you $50,000 if you call it Ferrier's Footbridge. (laughs) I said, great. I said, we could have a big neon out the front with you smoking a cigar and the smoke coming out. He said, perfect, let's do that. (laughs) So he got all carried away with it. Then when it got come, then we get to, he said, but I don't want my name. He said, really, I don't want my name on it. You guys run it because I'm too old to do that. I'll just concentrate on my acting and whatever. So we took it, we signed the lease. So no, we're about to sign the lease. And I say, oh no, that 50K, can we, can you give it to us? And he said, oh, I haven't got it. Because <laughs> Noel was a bit of a gambler too. So... He was either full of it all or he he just didn't want to do it. But it, look, it, it didn't matter at the end of the day. So Ashley said, who was always very careful, oh, we can't sign the contract, can't sign this, we haven't got the money. I said, how do you know that? They don't know we haven't got the money. What do we need money for? We've got enough friends to, to 
you know, I've got this friend there, she'll work behind the bar, that person will sell the tickets, whatever. And I think we had a booking, it was Graham Bond's show was coming in and Boys and Macbeth or yeah, or yeah, one of, Jack or? yeah one of those mm. things and then um, and then a play called 1984 from the Adelaide Festival was coming over yes anyway so it, and that was all guaranteed rent so we had a cash flow about to happen so he actually said you can't sign I said oh bugger it I'm so, so I signed it I don't care I thought, what are they going to do throw us in jail for and send the debt collectors so, so there the obviously was a yin and yang between the two of yeah, you. Yeah, were, yeah. Were you both terrible risk takers? I, no, I was a great risk taker. Right. Always have been. And where he, he wasn't, was, he was always a little careful. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. So. And he's the publicist. He was the publicist and were co-directors of the Gordon Frost organization. Right. So. And you're a, a marketeer. What What are the special skills that you're bringing to the relationship? I have no idea. I just love being <laughs> you in. Just show love showbiz. <laughs> So, no, I don't know. I probably had some skills. No, I think I could, you know, I could... Talk the talk. Talk the talk. There's yeah. a bit of a charm there. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it was a good it was a good partnership. Um, and then it... So we signed this thing and then we did... Uh, the first thing was a play called Night Mother with Jill Perryman and June Salter. A play about suicide. So I don't know if you know the play. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful play. play. Yeah. So that was a great success. And we made... We opened the show in Sydney with zero zero in the account of the Gordon Frost main account, and on the advance account, which was the advance bookings, was about seventeen thousand dollars, which we thought was fantastic. So the show plays five weeks; it makes seventy thousand dollars profit. We think, oh my god, this is easy. Why have I been, you know, working at Kinsella's and Marion Street and putting up with all the rubbish? Anyway, so the next show we do is we get more adventurous. I go to New York and I see an agent called Bridget Ashenberg and she introduces me to a play called Women Behind Bars, which is basically set in a female prison with one male in it. And it's it's a bit off the wall. It's really very off-Broadway-ish. But I, it's one of the only scripts I've ever read where I physically laughed out loud and I thought, oh, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. So we did it and brought the American director over. And at that stage... Um, Ashley, I remember Ashley coming down with a very bad um, uh, shingles and all his face was sort of like, oh, terrible. Anyway, so he meets the director and the director thinks, oh my God, who's this? It looks like the elephant man, you know. So this wonderful director called Ron Link. Anyway, from there on, we had everybody and their dog in it. You know, it was uh, Maria Venuti, it was... Um, Canelli. Judy Canelli, June Bronhill, Peter mm-hmm. Mockery... Um, uh, now, Little Nell. Uh, Little Nell, yeah. Campbell. Nell Campbell was in it. Anyway, everyone was in it. And the opening night, it went for... Um, oh, and I was an agent for a year too, two years, for Bill Shanahan. Oh. So anyway, um, just throwing it in. Just another... Yeah, in the <laughs> days of Mel Bible. Gibson and Judy, Judy Davis and Robin Nevin. Um, and so, which I didn't like being... But anyway... An agent? Um, oh, I hate being we an agent. We can segue for a bit. Well, it's just dealing with making the deal. Oh, well, you do that now, don't you? I, I try not to. I leave it to everybody that works for me. Oh. I try not to speak to agents. Okay. Yeah, they right. sort of... I, that's another story. Hangovers. Mm. Um, but but you, in Women Behind Bars, you've got June Bronhill in the, in the mm. role that was made famous by Divine, yeah, a the, you know, 120 kilo drag, drag queen. queen. Yeah, yeah, well, June had put on a bit of weight by then, so we thought that might work. <laughs> but she was tiny. Tiny, like a little 
popsicle. But also, having said that, this woman who was, you know, the Merry Widow. When, yeah, that's right. Maria she Bontra was the, the heart of everyone. Is up she, there dropping their bombs and all over the place. Doing well, things that, with the trungeon. But that was the most exciting thing about it was right. that we thought, well, you know, June, this will be good for your career. It's diversifying after all these years, and she sort of felt the same. But then it got to a point where she was getting hate mail. For doing it? Yeah, for doing it from all these people that wanted to see her do The Merry Widow or thought they were coming to see The Merry Widow uh, and she was doing Women Behind Bars. So um, she she sort of lost her confidence on it a bit and we thought we would um, replace her. She never knew this, thank God. Um, and the show's selling six tickets a day, so it's it's a disaster after the opening night. So it's going downhill and um, we decided to replace her quietly. So I tend to, I thought Reg Livermore would be perfect. He'd been doing television for a while. So I rang Reg and I said, oh Reg, da, 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 da. would you entertain taking over from June Bronhill in Women Behind Bars? And there was a pause and it sort of went on and on and on. And he went, I said, Reg, are you there? He said, I never thought I'd be asked to take over from June Bronhill. I'm so flattered. <laughs> Does she know? I said, no. He said, right. I don't think I could do that. So he didn't. And it was just, I think it was producer panic because we weren't selling tickets. And on opening night, which should have told me everything, was that opening night. It was no interval. And I, the first, another lesson, you always learn wonderful things in the theatre, the life lessons. The first thing I did, the minute the curtain came down, I rushed out to the lobby and Bill Shanahan, the, the wonderful agent who I'd worked for, I rushed up to Bill and I said, Bill, what do you think? Did you like it? He said, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. The only good thing for you about this is that the show doesn't have an interval because no one would have come back for it too. And he was probably right. Probably right. You had a song written for it, didn't you? We did. Just for that production. Just for that production, and we recorded it. And I've yeah. got the recording somewhere here. And I think was we did it on the Mike Walsh Mike, show. I've, I've got it on Oh, have you got it on video? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic, yeah. yeah, yeah. Very good, very good. So I think we finished, put that in. That was all desperado time. It was like, let's write a song. They'll think it's a musical. They won't know. And I think we did it at the Curtain Call. Yeah. I think it ran about six weeks or whatever. Fabulous stuff. It was fun. Of course, that professional relationship succumbs to a grinding halt when Ashley passes of AIDS. Mm. Well, that was really interesting because he had been really sick. Or he was, there was something not right and I didn't know what it was. And, um, and it was that whole thing, it was that whole period when that first wave of AIDS went through Australia. That's in the late 80s. Yeah, late 80s, yeah. And... He, I remember him saying, he, he rang me up once and he said, oh, I've had an accident. And I said, oh, this was a Sunday. And I said, well, what happened? He said, oh, I've fallen through the shower screen at home at his place. I said, right, is it, are you all right? You cut? And he said, no, no, I'm fine. But I said, so I gather it was a, a bath situation and glass around or something. Anyway, he'd had an accident. And I said, I'll come over. He said, no, 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 no. And then he started getting rather maudlin and he'd been ill for diff, just different look he'd get a cold or he'd get something and that and I'd, I'd, you know I said you know Ashley um, at least you've got good friends around you and um, 
He said, oh, I don't have any friends. And I went, oh, okay. I thought maybe I might have been one at one stage. <laughs> and and I think this was all to do with how sick he was. And he, he said, um, I said, oh, look, you know, life's a good thing. I just felt he wasn't suicidal, but it was like... But it was obviously somebody, affecting his mental yeah, health. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, you know, you've got to be, you know, we're both blessed. We're doing what we love doing and that. And... You, you must, re, you know, at least we're not like some of those poor buggers that are, you know, at St. Vincent's, you know, dying with AIDS. And he said, as I feel it now, he was so cold about it. He said, yes, I am. That's what I've got. And that's how he told me over the phone. And it was like, oh, no, that's what I've got. I went, what? And he said, oh, yeah, no, I've been diagnosed, da, 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 da. And then it was just a downhill battle from there onwards. So the physical change hadn't really happened yet? No. And then it started really quickly after that, actually, and getting sick and pills. And, you know, the preview night, we did a matinee and an evening performance of Big River in Melbourne at Her Majesty's Theatre. And we'd go to all the previews. And I, I said to somebody who was with me, I said, oh, where's Ashley? And they went, oh, don't know. And we couldn't find him. And then that night he turned up for the evening performance. I said, where have you, where have you been? He, came, he pulled me across and he said, I've been to Sydney. I've been to St. Vincent's having a um, transfusion. So it was like, wow, oh, you know, like, this is pretty bad. And then he died uh, probably about four months, five months after that. And it was pretty hair-raising seeing someone die like that and with everything that in those days that they couldn't do, but, you know, and with you know going blind and all the stuff all awful 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 way and and just to walk through that ward ward set on the seventh floor i think it was to see young people and old people just waiting to go you know and the, it was just horrific you, you must know, have just, been quite fearful yourself oh very fearful yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it was like wow this is like I know I went through, I went through a point in my life during that whole scare where I just lost every bit of energy. Wanting, I didn't want to work. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to go out. You know, I'd come into work or I'd drink quite heavily at night and then wake up with a terrible hangover and then not get to work until two in the afternoon, and then start it all again. That was a, you know, it was just just a really it emotionally well, that's affected your, me. Your grief period. Also. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And you're losing uh, practitioners from the theatre. With the, uh, the theatre industry lost a lot of. People. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, worldwide. You know, when you think of the the talent lost, and he was, you know, he was up there with, you know, I think that wave with Richard Werrett and I think, or Richard was later. Yeah. Stuart when, Callender. Yeah, and... all those wonderful people. Yeah. Um, but it was a cruel way, you know, and we didn't know any, you know, medical research hadn't got to it and the, the concoctions that they give you now, you know, it's remarkable and it's wonderful, so. Did you question whether you could continue with the business? Whether yeah, I, totally. Whether the Frost organisation was going to continue? Totally, because I thought I could do two things. When he died, I thought I could just sit and do nothing. I've got enough money. Well, we had enough money where I could just sit back because the theatre, the footbridge had been booked for a year. So there was a cash flow, money coming in. So I knew I didn't have to produce anything. I could just wait and pan it out. Or I could just close it down now and I could get, personally could get a job 
and I thought of this very seriously in a re, like a regional theatre, or that was well after the time when all those 500, 600 seat theatres had opened in Wollongong. And I thought, I could do that. I could run one of those Cameron. things on my ear and have a great time. It'd be fantastic. You know, add a bit of show business to those places. Rural towns, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I thought I'd do that. So I thought that. Well, then eventually it didn't happen. And I thought, okay. And it was just like waking up one morning going, okay, it's showtime. You know what I mean? We're back. Let's do it. And then um, I had, we, we started on doing, well, when Ashley was alive, we did Jerry's Girls and we did Big River. So he died during Big River. Um, and so it was, okay, what are we doing next? So the next big project really after that was, I think, the um, the King and I, South Pacific and uh, Hello Dolly and Crazy For You. So, a lot of people believe that there is a, a Gordon Frost. Yeah, they do. do they you sometimes get called Well, when, when people ring up here, you know, they ring up and they say, um, oh, is Gordon in, please? And they go, no, he's not. Uh, well, I spoke to Gordon the other night and Gordon said I could have two free tickets to go and see Shrek the musical. Well, good. But the man doesn't exist. So, you know, or people say, call me Gordon. So now and then I just used to get snappy about it. I now just ignore it. Don't worry. You, you kept his name in the. In yeah, the, I have because business. I think that you know I, I'm. I love tradition. I love the thought of things going on, as I have huge respect for you know what the J.C. Williams at the firm did, and all of that. And I would never compare myself to J.C. Williamson's, but but. You know, I think GFO now, as it's sort of called at times, the Gordon Frost Awards, you know, we've, we've been doing it for 40 odd years now, and there's not, there's no other outfit that's survived that long other than firms like JC Williamson's or maybe Ken Brodziak, you know, people like that. But we've been in it for the, the long term, and I like to think, and I kept it also for his dad, the name, you know, and Fashley, because. I wouldn't have done it without Ashley going, come on, come on, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. So, you know, it's, it's there for as long as I suppose I continue doing it. And that's the first part of my conversation with John Frost. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? Much I did not know about Frosty's apprenticeship in the theatre and the tenacity to succeed, the preparedness to trial any role and the eternal passion for an entertainment industry that has sustained him throughout a long career. Join me next time for the companion episode where John examines some of his triumphs and disasters. He describes the international success of The King and I and he recalls some of the amazing folk he has worked with and learned from. It's a terrific conversation and you won't want to miss the rest of this tale of Frosty the Showman. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time on Stages.